Hi, my name is Mary. The Old Testament reading is found in Micah 6, verse 6 to 8. With what should I approach the Lord and bow down before God on high? Should I, become, should I come before him with entirely burned offerings and with year-old calves? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with many torrents of oil? Should I give my oldest child for my crime, the fruit of my body for the sin of my spirit? He has told you, human one, what is good and what the Lord requires from you, to do justice, to embrace faithful love, and to walk humbly with your God. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Philippians 1, verse 27. Most important, live together in a manner worthy of Christ's gospel. Do this whether I come and see you or whether I'm absent and hear about you. Do this so that you stand firm, united in one spirit and mind as you struggle together to remain faithful to the gospel. The word of the Lord. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Come to me, all you who are struggling hard and carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Put on my yoke and learn from me. I am gentle and humble, and you will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy to bear, and my burden is light. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. We're going to pray here in just a second. Good morning, everyone that is here. Thank you for braving the cold and the snow. Your ski gear looks great this morning. Looks fantastic on you. Those of you at home, we love you. We miss you. Hope you're enjoying your fireplace, your electric blankets, that cup of coffee you're clutching in your hands and staying warm. We miss you. We love you. Hey, we have a big announcement to make this morning before we dive into the sermon. Uh, you may know if you've been around New Life long enough that our mission as a church is to make disciples across the Pikes Peak region by calling people to worship, to connect, and to serve. We believe that as followers of Jesus, we are shaped into his image. We learn how to live like him when we live that kind of life, a life that is centered on worship, that is committed to connecting with one another and building healthy relationships within the church, and a life of service, serving in the church, serving in the city, serving in the world, taking the things that God has entrusted us with and using them to advance his kingdom in the world. Our primary strategy for doing that in New Life Church is actually to have more congregations in the city and more congregations in order to reach more people with the gospel and disciple more people in the way of Jesus. And so over the last uh, nine, ten years, we have been increasing our number of congregations primarily by planting new ones in the city. So for example, nine years ago coming up is when New Life Downtown began. Nine years! As Pastor Glenn said last week, though, we still very much feel like a church plant. I think it's all the setting up and tearing down and moving around boxes and signs and all of those things and all the locations. Last week, our most recent congregation, New Life East, celebrated their one-year birthday. And what a year they had. They got to meet for like two months 
and then COVID happened. Uh, and yet they stayed together as a people, regathered when they could at Grand Peak Academy and started celebrating last week their one-year anniversary. But not only do we have moments where we plant new congregations, there's been a couple moments where there have been other churches in town who have formed a relationship with New Life and then we sort of sat down and said, it seems good to us in the spirit to join forces. <laughs> that your strength and our strength can actually be mutually beneficial to one another. And so the first time that happened actually was in 2016 when we merged with the largest Latino Latina congregation in our city and Nueva Vida became a part of the New Life family. And that same thing is going to be happening again. Uh, over the last uh, several years, actually going back a long time, uh, many of us on staff have a long-term friendship with Jade and Christy Duncan, who are the pastors, been pastors for 15 years uh, at a church in town called Antioch that meets at Austin Bluffs and Academy. And over the last year or so, we've been prayerfully considering what would it look like for us to become family together. So on March 28th uh, this year, on Palm Sunday, Antioch will become New Life Midtown. And we will now have eight congregations meeting in six locations, speaking three languages, and sometimes the joke around New Life is four if you include tongues. So if those of you who grew up in charismatic backgrounds, you're like, oh, yeah, I see what you did there. The rest of you are like, I don't know what that guy's talking about. And that's fine. So if you know anyone that's at Antioch, if you know anyone that lives in the center part of our city, kind of Austin Buffson Academy, invite them to go and check out Antioch, soon to be New Life Midtown, as our family continues to grow and expand. Let's pray this morning. Father, we come before you and we pray uh, that what has happened to the prophets will happen to us, that the word of the Lord would come to us, the word of the Lord would happen to us, that we would experience the word of the Lord in this time together, and that in experiencing your word, we would actually get a picture that we would enter into, that we would understand your very heart. On this Valentine's Day, we pray especially that we would understand your heart for us, that we would know that your love for each of us individually and your love for the church collectively and globally and historically, how passionately you love your people. And then we would also get a glimpse for how much you love others, how much you love the world, that you would give your only son, that we would in a sense, capture your heart today. Capture your love for us. Capture your love for others that it might through us, uh, flow through us to the world. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. When you're moving to a new city or find yourself in a transition point, oftentimes we end up in a space where we find ourselves looking for community. And maybe you moved to a new city, maybe you moved to Colorado Springs recently, and one of the questions you kind of start to ask is, who are my people? 
Where's my community going to be? And some of those questions become, well, what kind of church do I want to be a part of? What kind of church am I looking for? And oftentimes those conversations will settle, will uh, sort of center on style. Well, I'm looking for this kind of preaching or I'm looking for this kind of music or looking for this kind of liturgy or I'm looking for a church that does these kinds of things in the city. Or maybe you're a part of a church and like, oh, I'm really wanting to get more connected. I'm wanting to get more involved. And oftentimes those conversations for us will settle, center around a lot about demographics. When we have our meal group launches, whenever we get a chance to like officially meet in each other's homes again, a lot of the conversations are, oh, I'm looking for a group of other 20-somethings, or I'm looking for another group of empty nesters, or I'm looking for other folks that are newly married, or maybe I'm looking for a group that is singles and marrieds and multi-generational. I'm looking for a group of other men or other women, and we look for that kind of community. But when we turn to the scriptures... The scriptures are actually obsessed with revealing to us the kind of community that God seeks. That one of the things that God is looking for in his people, one of the things that he's hoping to be true about the people that carry his name in the world. And we actually get a little bit of a glimpse of that today as we continue our series through the Minor Prophets. We're in week six, halfway through after today of our journey through the 12 Minor Prophets. And we're looking today at the book of Micah. And Micah gives us a picture in one of his more famous passages about the community that God is looking for, the community that God seeks. But first, a little background on Micah. The book opens this way and gives us kind of the historical context for which to understand Micah's words. Oftentimes we have to understand the prophet's world in order to understand the prophet's word and understanding what they're looking at and what they're facing. And so here we see in Micah chapter 1, the Lord's word came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Judah's kings Jotham and Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And this is what he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Micah's name is the short form of a Hebrew name that we translate Michael. The, word, the name actually means who is like God. Interestingly, it's the last question in the very book, in the very, uh, in the very last chapter of Micah, that he ends the book by asking the question, who is like your God. There's something about this book that wants us to tune into the character and nature of God himself as he's talking with and addressing his people. Mike is from a town called Moresheth, 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So all of you with your maps out right now, you can trace that out and find your best travel plans to go and visit there. It's actually in the southern kingdom of Judah. It's what really this wants us to know is Mike is part of this southern kingdom in this time that Israel is divided into two, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And then it lists these three kings that he is prophesying under their reign. And it situates Micah for us in a really interesting time frame. 
that he prophesies sometime between 742 B.C. and 687 B.C. So you can map that on your timeline as you're following along with your map. Uh, But that helps us to understand that Micah is actually facing some really critical things happening in the people of God's history. One is that in 722 B.C., Assyria will come and they will conquer the northern kingdom. The capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria, will fall, and those northern tribes will get exiled all over the Assyrian Empire and become known as the lost tribes of Israel. A few years later, about 21 years later in 701, the Assyrians are now coming for Judah. And they're coming around actually through the very area that Micah lives in, And coming in 701 BC and beginning to attack Jerusalem. God delivers them from that uh, invasion at that time. And we see then later on Judah's fate from there. But he's prophesying around this time a lot of turmoil, a lot of threat coming from this Neo Assyrian Empire. It also places. Micah, just after Hosea and Amos, if you remember those sermons that we've already talked about, Hosea is a prophet who prophesies to the northern kingdom, and he talks to them about their worship. And he says that you actually have committed adultery against God with your idol worship. So he's talking to them about the ways in which their worship has become misshaped. They're worshiping the wrong God or they're worshiping God in the wrong ways, in ways that don't actually resemble his character and his nature. And then Amos talks to that same group of people, the northern kingdom, and talks to them not so much about their worship, but about their ethics, about the way that they're treating particularly the poor in their community and saying this is not the way that people of God live and God will have none of it. Now Micah, for the first time in the minor prophets, he focuses his gaze on the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has kind of taken the brunt of the prophet's words so far and now Micah, for the first time, brings us with sort of real focus in on the southern kingdom. And he says this, he says, it was the beginning of the sin for the daughter of Zion. Zion is another term that gets used for Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. And he says, the crimes of Israel have been found in you. That those very things that were happening as we read Hosea and those very things that we read as we read uh, Amos, that those things, that idolatry and that injustice are not just problems there in the northern kingdom, they're actually problems here in Judah, in Jerusalem, in the city of David. Those things are happening in that place as well. He says this in Micah 3, one of the more incisive sort of critiques that he has. He says, hear this, leaders of the house of Jacob, rulers of the house of Israel, you who reject justice and make crooked all that is straight. You who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with injustice. Can you imagine a prophet saying, your entire city Your entire way of life is being built on bloodshed and injustice. And so here, this is what's going on. Her officials give justice for a bribe. 
In other words, you want a particular court hearing to go your way, just slip a little money, un- money under the table, and it's not justice at all at that point. And her priests, they teach for hire, and her prophets offer divination for silver, and yet they rely on the Lord saying, isn't the Lord in our midst? Evil surely won't come upon us. And Micah says, no, sorry. Because of all of this, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field and Jerusalem will become a pile of rubble and the temple mounts will become an overgrown mound. And it's about a hundred years after Micah that that happens. The Babylonians come in and they capture Jerusalem and they destroy the temple and they exile Judah into Babylon. Micah has these other moments though where he envisions a future beyond this. That he says, yes, judgment is coming and yet this will not be the end for the people of God, but instead God will do a great work of restoration. But in Micah 6, right in the middle of all of that, we hear God pleading through the prophet for Judah to change their ways now. Saying, please, don't live your life this way. It's one of the most powerful and poignant passages of God pleading with his people. And the whole thing sort of set up like a courtroom drama, but much better than anything on CBS. So it's sort of set up as God coming to Israel in this dialogue with them, questioning them, putting them on the hot seat, and asking them to give accounts for the way in which they are living. It begins this way, Micah 6 verse 3. My people. I love how even in these moments, God is continuing to call his people his. That even when he is coming to them in judgment, he calls them his people. My people, what did I ever do to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Because don't you remember who I am? I'm the one who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I'm the one who redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam before you. And not only did I do that, my people, don't you remember what Moab's King Balak had planned and how Balaam Beor's son answered that? Remember everything that I've done from you, for you from Shatim to Gilgal, that you might recognize the righteous acts of the Lord people. What have I done? Do you not remember? And then the people answer from what we heard in the scripture reading today. What do you want from us? So what do you want from us, God? What are you really looking for? What are you after? Are you wanting more bulls? You want us to just sacrifice some more animals here? Will a thousand do? How will that work for you? Maybe you're just looking for a thousand rams. How about torrents of oil? I can't even picture what torrents of oil look like. It's like bathtubs full of oil. And we'll just anoint everything. Will that make you happy, God? And then they're so audacious. As if they've forgotten completely who their God is. What about child sacrifice? Would you like that? How about I give you my firstborn child? God responds back. He's like, are you kidding me? He has already told you, human one, what is good and what the Lord requires. The word there is actually what the Lord seeks. This is what the Lord's looking for. 
This is the kind of people the Lord is longing for. This is the kind of people that God wants. He wa- this is what he wants. I mean, he wants you to do justice and embrace faithful love and walk humbly with your God to do justice, to embrace faithful love and to walk humbly with your God. The first thing we see in this passage is that God seeks a community that will be shaped by his story. He's looking for a people that will be shaped by the story of God. All communities, whether it's a small community like a family or a larger community like a nation, all families, all communities, all nations are shaped by our stories. Our histories actually inform, like they form our identity and they inform our pathos and ethos as a people. The things that we say, this is who we are, and these are the things we're passionate about, and this is how we live, all of those things can be traced in our history. These are the things that have happened to us, therefore we live this way. In my family, one of the huge things that was a kind of a driving story in the family that I grew up in is that my mom was hit head-on by a drunk driver when I was six years old. So in December of 1984, she was heading to a town to go Christmas shopping and a drunk driver crossed the center line and hit my mom and her sister head on. My mom's back was broken, but her life was saved by her seatbelt. And so you know what became true of my mom? She became the most passionate seatbelt person in the world. Like I remember times as a kid where you ever have those moments like you're running late for the really, 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 really important things in life, like t-ball practice, all right? And you're just like, mom, we gotta go, we gotta go, we gotta go. And my mom would be in the car and she'd be sitting down and she would just look at us, not starting the car, not beginning to back the car out of the garage. We're running late, but my mom is not moving, because the car did not start until the seatbelts were on. I mean, it didn't matter if you had this belt in your hand. The key was not turning. It didn't matter if you were pulling it across your body. That key was not turning. The key did not turn until the seatbelt was locked and checked and fully loaded. And then we were ready to go. Her history determined her pathos which made a certain kind of ethic in our family. It happens for all of us in our families, in our churches. And here in Micah, as in other prophets, all throughout the scriptures, but particularly in the prophets, God is over and over again recounting his story with his people. He's continually coming back to what it is that he has done. He continually comes back to the Exodus and to the wilderness into the arrival in the land of Canaan. He continually comes back and says, I'm the one who delivered you. I'm the one who led you. I'm the one who provided for you. I'm the one who gave you this land. And what God is asking for from his people is he wants that story to shape every part of our lives. Yes, we have all of these other stories that we inherit from our family, that we inherit from our nation. But he says, yes, 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 that's fine. But all stories should be part of my story. And my story should shape every other story. This is the story that matters. This should be the story that determines your identity and informs your pathos and your ethos as a people. God wants us to be, as our friends say, uh, Sally and Clay Clarkson say, wants his people to be story-formed. 
be formed by his stories, looking for a community to embody it, to enact it, to live into it. It's actually why we gather on Sundays. That in this room, what we're doing as we're coming together and singing songs and praying prayers and opening the scriptures and coming to the table is we're reminding ourselves of the story. That's why every week we take the bread and the cup and we say, and we remember on the night in which he gave himself up for us, our Lord Jesus took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it. Because we want that story that we rehearse and remember on Sunday to be the story that we live out on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday in our homes and our workplaces and with our neighbors. This story is to be the determining story of our lives, even in our kids' ministry. The mission of our kids' ministry is to partner with parents to invite kids into God's story. We want them to know the story that they're invited into and to live out of. God's looking for a community that will be shaped by his story. What does that look like? What does that mean exactly? Well, Micah graciously gives us three examples of what that actually looks like in practice. The first thing he says is that the community that God seeks, the community that's shaped by God's story, actually does what God does. That it does what he does. First thing he tells them to do is to do justice. Why? Because God is just. And God does justice in the world. There's kind of two dimensions for we can, the ways we can think about justice. On one hand is the way that a, a, a community or a society is structured, the way that it's ordered. How is it set up? Is it a just society? Are the laws just? Are the ways in which society is ordered? Is it ordered in a way that actually resembles the character of God? And then the other side of justice is, well, how does the community respond when that's violated? That when injustice occurs, how does the community respond in that point in order to maintain or actually bring things back to justice, bring things back to rightness and goodness? And what we see happening here in Micah is that in the country of Judah, in the kingdom of Judah, they're not doing justice. They're doing the opposite. They're doing injustice. They're actually oppressing the poor and the vulnerable and taking their land, which is strictly forbidden throughout the Old Testament. And not only is this happening in business relationships and elsewhere, that things are being sort of tilted against the poor and the vulnerable, those that are marginalized in favor of those that are rich and powerful, that's happening. But then those that are responsible for addressing it, they're not doing anything. The civic leaders are just saying, okay, we'll turn a blind eye, just hand us a bit more money under the table. And not only are the civic leaders not doing what they're supposed to do in order to enact justice in the community, then you have the religious leaders. The priests and the prophets, they're saying, don't worry about it, God's with us. We'll just keep on worshiping and doing our things. It's fine. Evil won't come to us because we're Jerusalem. We've got the temple. God's here. It's fine. He understands. And God screams to the prophets and says, no. See, what's actually happening in Judah is the undoing of the Exodus. They're undoing what God has done. They're recreating the conditions of Egypt in the land that God has given them. 
they're oppressing people into slavery. See, this time, instead of Egypt oppressing Israel, it's actually the rich and powerful people in Judah who are marginalizing and oppressing and enslaving those who are poor and vulnerable. They are undoing rather than doing. And in doing so, they're actually living out of a different story. They're living in a story that's contrary to the story of God. They're not being shaped by their history. They're not being shaped by who God is and what God has done. Instead, they're saying, no, 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 that doesn't matter. We're being shaped by something else. And friends, the people of God, we are at our worst when we are living out of a story that's different than the story that God's telling. When we are living according to a different story than the one revealed in the Scriptures. We're at our worst when the gospel no longer becomes the center story of our lives, but we are at our best when that story catches us up and our entire lives become formed by it. Think about this aspect of the story that says in the beginning, God created humans, male and female in his image and his likeness, created people in his image. And in that story, we find not only did God create humans, but the very word of God, Jesus himself, took on flesh and blood. He became human. And not only did Jesus become human and take on flesh, this body, but his body was resurrected. His body was killed and his body was brought back to life, made new. And then we go to the very end of the story and how does the story end with the resurrection of our bodies? The whole story of scripture is a story about the goodness of the human body. The body is not something that's sort of like secondary to us. It's something God created and made good and it's something that God wants to redeem and restore and resurrect and renew so the people of God say, oh, That's why we are so passionate about caring for bodies. That's why the church cares for the sick. That's why the church clothes the naked. That's why the church visits people in prison. That's why we make sure that people have shelter in these cold nights. That's why we make sure that people who are hungry have food. That's why we make sure that we do everything we can to provide for people who are carrying other babies, that those babies might be brought into the world. That's why we give our lives for serving in nursing homes and giving people dignified deaths and births and holding on to the hope of resurrection from them. because we're shaped by a story that say bodies matter. So we never treat bodies differently than that. We say they're full of dignity and value and worth. Those of you that are teachers, you're doing the same thing. We say, oh, in this story, we find all these passages about studying. We find God instructing his people, God showing himself as a teacher Right? We see Jesus himself growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and people. We see Jesus saying, little children, come to me. And so then teachers step into that story and they say, teaching matters. God's a teacher. Kids matter. We're going to give our lives for making sure that they grow up and learn wisdom. That they might know how to live in the world. You can take any vocation and see how it fits into that story. Well, not everyone, most vocations. There's a few that we'd say, no, let's not go there. (laughs) Right? But the community that God seeks does what God does. Second thing we see is that the community that God seeks loves what God loves. 
Some of the passages say to love mercy or to love kindness. The original language says to love chesed, which is a term that we've talked about often here at New Life Downtown. It means covenant faithfulness. It means loyalty. It's God saying, I'm not giving up on my people. I'm going to be faithful to my covenant even when they are not faithful. So if you think for a moment about maybe your best friend or maybe your spouse or maybe your kids, think about the people that you love. One of the things that becomes true about the people that we love is that we learn to love what they love. Right? If they care about it, if they're passionate about it, we learn to love those things. Last week, Pastor Glenn mentioned that my family, we became a statistic in August. We joined the ranks of those who added a pandemic puppy to their household. A little Havanese poodle mix named Pepper. This was a huge thing for our family. 17 years ago, my wife and I sat in pre-engagement counseling and we had an hour and a half fight about how we would never have pets. (laughs) Me being the holdouts, no pets. Her being, how can you not love a puppy? Me, I'm a cold-hearted person and I will never have a puppy in my life. And then 17 years later, there's Sarah and Cora and Avi, and Lila, my precious wife, and my three daughters, all asking me for a puppy. (laughs) And I caved. I collapsed. And I am trying to love that puppy. (laughs) (laughs) A puppy that eats my baseboards. I don't know why she chews up my baseboards, but she does. That puppy that makes all kinds of noises and all kinds of messes. I am trying. I'm not there yet. But I am learning to love that dog because my kids do and my wife does. God loves his people. He delights in showing faithfulness to them. He gives his loyalty to them even when we don't deserve it. God gives chesed. He gives love. He gives loyalty. It calls us to do the same. Last week, Pastor Glenn, in his message about Jonah, said if we're really honest, enemies are really hard to love. That when we see Jonah calling us to love our enemies, like, that's hard. It's impossible. The truth is the church is hard to love as well. It's hard to love each other. It's hard to love each other in this room. And it's hard to love people in other churches and other places throughout all history and throughout time. It's hard to love the church maybe even more so now than ever as we see the church divided and church people saying all kinds of things and doing all kinds of uh, different things in Jesus' name. We find ourselves having all kinds of reactions against that. And it's so hard for us to say, that's my brother or that's my sister. I would rather they not be in the family. Paul says it's a struggle to stay together, to to be together for the, to be faithful to the gospel, to be united together. He says it's worth the struggle, but it's hard. Earlier this week, my my wife was reading from a book and came across this passage from Carlo Corretto, who's a Catholic author, and he writes this about how hard it is to love the church, about this relationship that we have. He says, oh, how baffling you are, O church. And yet, how I love you. How you have made me suffer. And how much I owe you. I would like to see you destroyed. And yet, I need your very presence. You have given me so much scandal. And yet, you have made me understand what sanctity is. 
I have seen nothing in the world more devoted to obscurity, more compromised, and more false. And yet I have also touched nothing more pure, more generous, and more beautiful. How often have I wanted to shut the doors of my soul in your face? And how often I've prayed to die in the safety of your arms. No, I cannot free myself from you because I am you, though not completely. And besides, where would I go? (laughs) Sometimes we feel that way about the church. We feel that way about one another. And there are times we think it would just be easier to go. God calls us to be the kind of community that loves what God loves. And to love what God loves is to love the church, to love the people sitting around us, to love the people sometimes that we wish weren't part of the family, to give our loyalty to one another. And I think this is where we might live out the story of the cross more than any other. Because in order to love what God loves, in order to love the church, we have to take up our cross. We have to continually demonstrate self-sacrificial love toward one another. We have to continue to extend mercy and forgiveness. We have to continue to contend for unity, to contend for love, even when it's hard, even when it's painful. Oftentimes, the church stays together because it becomes more cross-shaped, not because it becomes easier, but we continue to pick up our cross and say, this is what it means to love God's people. The third thing he says is that the community that seeks, that God seeks, orients itself to his otherness. The scriptures might say that walk humbly with your God. In the scriptures, walking is always a metaphor for how we live. But when we hear humility or we hear humbly, we oftentimes think about defeats. We think about being destroyed. We think about sort of not being able to walk or get up. We have this sense of being humiliated. I played football when I was in high school. And my senior year in football, we redistricted, the state did. And it turned out in their wonderful plan to redistrict that the number one and number two ranked teams in the state ended up being in our districts. And our athletic director thought it would be a really good idea to have the number one team scheduled for our homecoming game. And so here we are, senior year, trying to get as pumped up for this senior year homecoming football game as we possibly can to go out onto the field and to lose 40 to zero. I mean, we didn't even get a point on the board. (laughs) And how can you dance after that? It's right, it's like you go and you get humiliated and then you get cleaned up. And my buddy Sam and I are in the parking lot like, we got to like pick up dates and go to a dance and pretend that all things are okay. Chiefs fans, maybe you can sympathize. Was it too soon? Was it? Sorry, it's been a week. I thought we were okay. Sometimes we think that's what walking humbly with God means. But it's actually in the scriptures, it's an awareness of God's otherness. It's an awareness that he is God and we're not. That's where it begins. It's a place where we recognize what it means to be fully human, to not pretend that we're divine, to not pretend that we don't have limits, to not pretend that we're not finite, to not pretend that we have everything all figured out and that we know the right thing to do all the time. It's to embrace the fact that we are actually desperately and helplessly in need of grace 
that we're desperately and helplessly in need of mercy, that we don't get it right all the time. In fact, we don't get it right very often. And the only times we get it right, it's because God's really gracious with us. It's a way of saying, I can't figure life out on my own, and I'm not going to try, but I'm going to submit to your way and to your instruction. Humility is a way of us saying and responding to Jesus' invitation, come to me, all you who are tired of trying it on your own. All of you are are tired of trying to figure out the right way to live. Those of you are tired of trying to write your own story. Those of you who are tired of continuing to go on this way, come to me and I will give you rest. Put my yoke on you and I will teach you actually the right way to live. And we come and say, okay, I'm not relying on my own understanding, but I'm trusting you and I'm going to live out this way according to your teachings because you're God and I'm not. And I believe even though sometimes it doesn't work out the way I wanted or hoped, I still believe that you're God, I'm not, and this is the best way to live. It's a recognition of who he is and what he's like and saying, I'm going to live with you and follow your ways. Which is why I love how Micah ends. Because Micah ends in this very place where he reminds us at the end of his book exactly what the God we follow is like. He says, in case you forgot the story, in case you forgot the character of God, let me remind you, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, who does this? Overlooking the sin of the few remaining for his inheritance, who does this? He doesn't hold on to his anger forever, but he delights in faithful love and chesed and staying faithful and loyal to us. He will once again have compassion on us. He will tread down our iniquities. You will hurl all our sins into the depths of the sea. This is who you are. You'll provide faithfulness to Jacob, faithful love to Abraham as you swore to your ancestors long ago. And we continually come back and say, God, this is who you are. And this is the story you're telling. And with your help and by your grace and through the Holy Spirit and with the community of people that you've set me in, would you help us become a community shaped by your story? Would you help us to live out our lives in such a way that it shows the world who you are and what you're like? Would you help us to do what it is that you do? Would you help us to love one another the way that you love us, even when it would be easier just to just give up on the whole thing? And would you remind us that you're God and we're not? Would you help us to continually come to the table and ask for the help that we need? To come to the table to be shaped and formed into your story, into your image, and your likeness. Pastor Evan.